0: Hey, this is Mark. A study appearing in the Journal of the American Medical Association last week showed launch prices for new drugs increased 20% per year from 2008 to 2021. And over the last two years, almost half of new drugs were initially priced above $150,000 per year. Some of the fastest growth in launch prices is occurring among drugs that treat rare diseases. Their median launch price, about $168,000 per year. It's the kind of exponential growth that some in Congress want to rein in with measures like allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, capping insulin costs, and sanctioning drug imports from Canada. Indeed, some of these measures may be back in play, but it all sounds so familiar. We've heard talk of introducing similar drug price controls many times before, yet little has changed. But one place where change is happening is in Europe, where a series of reforms could make it harder for drug makers to gain preferential treatment through orphan drug designation. This week on the podcast, we discussed Europe's efforts to close the orphan drug loophole and how it might impact the U.S. pharma commercialization landscape. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. My guest this week is pricing guru Jack Micah, Vice President at Indigene and the Pricing Reimbursement Market Access Division. We'll get Jack's take on pricing trends, some of the measures European regulators are considering to close orphan drug loopholes, and the chances that with all the drug pricing pressures felt here in the U.S., lawmakers could follow in their footsteps. Jack, how are you? And thanks for joining me today.
1: I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, just would love to start off, uh, you know, just kind of talking about your background. You have a, a long one in the in the industry, and you've seen uh, pricing evolve over time. After working in the banking industry in the mid '90s. You began your pharma career with Roche, where you established the drugmaker's pharmaceutical pricing contract department. And you worked there for six years. You know, talk about that. And you know, why didn't Roche have a pricing department before then?
1: Well, they they did have a pricing department, but it was one person and, a, and an administrative assistant. And really, the change came about as Roche entered into a new age with managed care in the U.S. with different kinds of pressures and a different kind of portfolio of, of products, they decided, hey, we better we better think about doing this differently. And through a series of unrelated events, I ended up looking for a new challenge in my career that that had me find my way into pharma and offered me all kinds of opportunity at Roche, largely because I think I asked questions that were different than other people who had grown up in the pharma industry. I asked what seemed to me like pretty basic questions of, well, if we make this deal with this customer, do we make more money or less money? What is it that we're trying to accomplish by by taking this price to where we want to go? And by asking those questions, and especially asking those questions with a uh, an ill fitting customer hat on my head, it, it allowed me to distinguish myself from other folks and and had and had people recognize, hey. This, is, this, is, this could be some interesting stuff. Let's figure out where we want to go with this. And I got offered a lot of different opportunities as, as that time went along. And then wonderfully for me, that turned into a different career for the last 20 plus years of consulting in the same area, which is just amazing. I mean, in that I, now I've been doing the same thing more or less in, in some form or another for about 30 years and basically, it is people paying me to learn about stuff that I think is fascinating. I mean, the 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 forces that swirl around physicians and their patients and try to influence the decision making uh, largely based on economic issues, I just find fascinating and the differences in that between how it works in the U.S., how it works in Europe, how it works in other countries around the world, how it works for different payers at different times, how it works differently for different therapeutic areas just keeps me on my toes.
0: Sure, sure. And you draw from, you know, your background, you know, as, as we said, you you started at Roche in the 90s. And, you know, biotech had started like a decade or so prior to that. But there were some you know biotech drugs on the market. Uh, you know, like Genzyme had Ceridae's, you know, for Gaucher's disease, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, they came in with some unprecedented prices at the time. How did biotech kind of change the rules around pricing? And, and when did value become part of the, of the lexicon to such an extent?
1: It really all started around biotech coming around. I mean, I, I remember the first time I met somebody from Genentech. It was people from Genentech came to Roche in the U.S. They had started to have the relationship between the companies at that time. Um, Came to Roche because Genentech thought, well, we might have some interesting oncology products coming in the future, but we don't have any entree into oncology. And they were interested in potentially promoting Roferon A, which was one of the first biologics that was a Roche product. Of course, they went on to much bigger and better things than that over time. But it was a remaking of the way that the industry was going to be looked at and done and done differently in an area like oncology than in an area like rare disease, as you're talking about with Seridase, where the, the pillars of what you needed to think about in order to commercialize a product were different. So thinking about value in a way that not only said, what value do I deliver to a patient to a provider, but how do I deliver value to a shareholder when I've got a much smaller patient population than anything that I've ever gone at before? Those are really unique challenges that 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 got met by biologics, but in large part came about because of the Orphan Drug Act and having people say, "Hey, is there a way to make these kind of markets commercially viable?" They couldn't have been viable at the price of you know, a, a dollar or $2 a day, they needed to be much different than that. And then it became a whole interesting dance where at the start, mostly you had the markets and the payers basically saying, wow, this is great. People are finally bringing products forward for these rare disease patients. We support the fact that they need higher prices. It makes sense. And then over time, as, as payers started to recognize that this was going to go from a handful of drugs to two handfuls of drugs, to a bushel full of drugs, to truckloads of drugs that would come from that orphan orphan, uh, angle, they had to have a little bit of a different perspective on it. And that's when the, the scrutiny of price in that particular area, in the orphan area, started to change. The scrutiny on price overall has been with us for a long, long time, as far as biopharmaceutical goes, even before there were really buyouts, when it was just pharmaceuticals.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so so the um, you know pharma shed its conservative conservatism, if you will, around drug pricing around that time, and as the prices started going up, probably the scrutiny kind of came along with it. And uh, in two thousand one, as, as you said, you you co-founded MME or Medical Marketing Economics, the consulting firm, with a couple of colleagues, perhaps most notably Mick Colasa. Right. Um,
1: Mick. Mick literally wrote the book on pharmaceutical pricing. And he, he is the connective tissue through between a lot of us who were at MME. MME, actually, I started in parallel to MME and then merged my company with them a, a little while later. But Mick, Mick literally wrote the book on pharmaceutical pricing, was, was the guru who went around and, and, and tried to help a lot of people understand how price and value needed to be related to each other. And that's one of the things that I think over the years... Um, BioPharma hasn't done the best job of explaining the value of their products. They've 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 had trouble getting stuck in well the cost of our products is related to the development of those products or the cost of goods sold of those products and it's a whole different kind of mechanism than that when you're talking about an industry that's built on intellectual property and that intellectual property is going to be is going to require a lot of investment Before you can ever get any return and a significant majority of the products that you're going to invest money in are never going to see the light of day. So understanding that in a different way, I think it's been interesting over my almost 30 years doing this. It's even something that I think the the people at the manufacturers and developers of these products have, have gotten a different kind of grasp on over time, but still at times struggle with.
0: Sure. And to put it another way, you know, he's, and, and you all are kind of credited with being the first ones to sort of set down in writing, if you will, how drugs should be priced in terms of, okay, you might be paying six figures now, but it's going to save you money down the road, say with Savaldi, where it could prevent a, a liver transplant down the road. Okay, you might balk at that $84,000 per year price tag now, but it's going to save you so much more. And that's become kind of now de rigueur, if you will, you know, for these high priced drugs, right?
1: And I I think, Mark, it even goes back further than that. I mean, the way the way I think about the industry is and I don't think many people think of it this way. You know, it was it was the antibiotics of the early 20th century that made it so that World War II was the first war where more where more people were actually killed in battle than died from the injuries that they had in battle afterwards because of the infections that they got. And then it was the heart the heart medications of the 50s that allowed people to start to understand, wow, that, that, that can work in a whole different way and we can survive and move on as a society in a different way. And cancer became another, a whole other issue. And then the cancer medications of the late 20th century allowed us to take some of those cancer uh, tumors and turn them into things that live people live with for a long, long time. And certainly from my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the, the next level of innovations that are going to be there are going to allow things like Alzheimer's and other things that have emerged over time and taken a whole different level of prominence to be addressed in a different way. That's what value's about to me in the long run. Value in the long run is a whole different thing than in the short run. That doesn't mean that anybody that, that people are not. Uh, in their right mind, when they say, "Wait a minute, you've got a cure for HCV. That's so valuable, I shouldn't have to pay for it." That's one of the interesting dynamics that we have in this industry because, in most cases, at least in the developed world, we're talking about an intermediary, some kind of insurance that actually pays for the for the medication um, that gets delivered to help people, and people understanding. How those economic forces work and how they swirl around things and try to influence decision making, like I said before, is, is, is what keeps me going on this stuff.
0: Sure, sure. So let's fast forward into the current pricing environment. And, and uh, it was fun talking about how things got to where they are today. But specifically with orphan drugs, according to the study that I mentioned in my intro, the JAMA study uh, of drugs launched here in the US between 08 and, and 2021, rare disease drugs were the most expensive. The median price for the 64 rare drugs launched during that period was $168,441. And the Orphan Drug Act, as we know, uh, continues to take heat for letting manufacturers maintain high prices during an exclusive selling time and for giving orphan drug designations to existing treatments. You wrote a paper recently on how in Europe they're grappling with similar issues. So-called preferential handling of orphan drugs seems to be very much up for debate there. For instance, Germany may close the so-called orphan drug loophole. Can you give us a high-level summary of what's taking place there?
1: Sure. I think the What what we're really talking about here goes back to what what I alluded to a bit before on, okay, if we're going to, it all starts with the premise of, are we going to have some preference for orphan drugs? Is there a societal agreement that we should be developing drugs for people who have rare diseases, now, when they started doing that, I don't think they really considered how what they were really talking about and the number of rare diseases that there are and, and where that can go. And I think to some degree, the Orphan Drug Act could become a victim of its own success by promoting the, the opportunity to have these drugs developed. And key, like we talked about before, as with some of Genzyme's early work and some other companies and people figuring out what needed to happen in order for them to be commercially viable, which is one of the key ingredients is the high prices that go with with those drugs individually. They kind of compete with each other. Do we want to spend our money here? Is it really worth spending our money on that patient? And what you've seen over time is that 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 initial stage that I had talked about, where where basically everybody was walking together, saying these things are worth doing, and then they started to realize what kind of what kind of total expense they would have, or what kind of growth there would be on the spend of these drugs. And they started to say, "Wait a minute! Just because it's orphan doesn't mean I should pay for it." And that we I think we started to first see, especially in Europe, with reformulated products, which was which is a whole, uh, a whole strata of, of orphan drugs where people have said, hey, this drug's been around a while, but look, I think it might really be effective in this orphan area with a much smaller patient population. And if I can prove that, then maybe I can charge a higher price for it. Now, maybe I can charge a higher price for it is a whole different calculus if we're thinking about that in the U.S., than if we're thinking about that in almost every country outside the U.S., because in the U.S. you have the you have the ability to change the price and increase the price once a product is launched. Most places outside the U.S., you're not able to do that. And even and what that then became was people saying, "Okay, well here's a tweaked formulation of a drug, and I want to and I want to bring that to market." And you started to have payers say, "Wait a minute." Am I, are, when we're talking about the value here, am I really getting a lot of value or is that value somehow related to the product that came before and therefore I'm going to question that value? And that's that's where we really started to see that initially in the pushback. How that then evolved as time went along was you, you started to see people to some degree pushing back on list prices And and then at the same time, the overall construct of the way pricing works in pharmaceutical markets started to evolve a little bit to have people say, well, there really are different levels of price. There's list price and there's net price and there are multiple net prices. And so you started to have people say, well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll agree to some kind of level of list price that's similar to what you're asking for. But on the net price basis, I'm gonna hold, I'm gonna hold you to it to a different level of scrutiny. And especially in Europe, again, you started to see these medicines launch and have what were seemingly similar kind of list prices to what you see in the US, but the net price was a whole different thing. The net price ended up being lower. And over time, we've seen more and more pressure on those net prices for those, those products to lower their net price in order to gain access to those markets.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, in one analysis, the director of uh, the IQUIG, uh, if I may pronounce the acronym that way. EICWIG, yep. IQwig thank you, Germany's drug price-setting body. They found that in 54% of cases, there was no added benefit upon market access of orphan drugs, which sounds like kind of a, a function of what you're talking about. There are all these reformulations well, that were trying to get
1: orphan act, drug uh, designation. And it is and it isn't, Mark, truthfully. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about the German approach to this over the years, when Germany went through their major reform of how drug pricing would work, which is, which is referred to as Aminog, they installed what you referred to before as the orphan loophole, which basically said, if a drug is going to be evaluated by us for its clinical merit, if it's an orphan drug, we're not going to evaluate it the same way. If it's an orphan drug, we're going to assume that there's at least the minimum level of, of value delivered by it because we recognize that those, those drugs aren't, because of the size of the patient population, you're not going to be able to do the same size clinical trial that you normally would. So we can't hold it to the same level of rigor that we, that we would for, for, a, for a normal size population. And so that judgment of, hey, there's the, the minimum level of benefit required, and they get to check that box without the evidence being there, there are some cases where that was about, well, what, is this a reformulation or not? More often than not, it's about the fact that there isn't enough clinical data. The truth is for those products where, where the reformulation is the, product, is the problem, they still have to get over the hurdle to negotiate a price to be on the market in Germany. So we've still got the thing of, okay, clinically you're okay, but are you going to have a viable price to bring this product to market? And if they're in the situation of having the German authorities say, well, your drug is a reformulation of this old drug that I pay pennies a day for, they they might get in the position of having the authorities say, okay, your drug's innovative, I'm going to give you the highest uh, uh, premium that I can think of, I'm going to give you a 200% premium. That means your drug is six cents a day and it's no, and it's not a viable price to bring that product to market. So there's multiple hurdles that these products have to get over as they move, as they move through different systems. And certainly in some systems, it's not just at the national level. It's also at the regional or, or, um, or individual hospital levels. Where where these things have to be navigated to again back to great great stuff for me for somebody who cares about the the economic forces swirling around it because they swirl in different directions depending on depending on who's actually at the wheel.
0: Sure. So so it sounds like in Germany the orphan drug loophole uh, there's a good chance that that could be narrowed and maybe yeah, applicable.
1: And and the loophole has been controversial since before Ammonog came into effect truthfully. There were people who, before it came into effect, said, we should not be doing this. And there have been a number of discussions over the years about how to narrow it. The most recent discussions that kind of of came to a head in the first quarter of this year seem like it's quite likely that they're going to be making some changes, whether it be reducing the overall, there, there's, a, there's a limit on the total sales that you can have on a rolling 12-month basis in the country that if you exceed that limit, you then have to go back through the normal process. There, there, that, that limit's likely to come down. And there are other things similar to that, that, that likely will change. It doesn't seem like at this point, they're totally going to eliminate it but they are gonna they are gonna change it. And and one of the interesting things about that is, I mean, I know in, in my in my discussions with German colleagues who who I who I associate with, I've kind of always brought up the thing of, okay, well, what do the patient associations think about this? Because is this gonna get them in the situation where now it's gonna get punted over to, well, we don't we don't have the we don't have the exemption. So we're going to have a much more difficult price negotiation, which might then have companies say, well, maybe Germany's not as viable a market as it was before. So maybe I don't want to put this product on the German market, because I can imagine in a lot of countries, once patients, especially patients in rare disease areas, figure that out, they're not going to be happy about it. If that's the eventuality. So it's one of the other things that we've learned over the over many, many years with all kinds of pricing legislation all around the world. People have to think about not just what their intended consequences are, but they have to think about the unintended consequences, because when you're when you're messing with whether or not people can have access to to medications that are that have the have the promise of changing or prolonging their lives, people care.
0: Absolutely. And um, as you pointed out in the paper, you know, reform is afoot in other European countries as well. You talked about uh, France and Italy uh, and the UK, which are taking also a look at, uh, quote unquote, truly innovative orphan therapies and how they define their own, you know, definitions uh, of that. And, you know, which, which brings us to the question you started talking about how that could impact uh, changes in in commercialization and availability of certain therapies in certain countries, how that might impact patients. How might the proposed changes disincentivize the development of orphan therapies?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, to me, one of some of the most interesting things that people are talking about now is actually, they're talking about pan-European reform, and saying hey maybe what we should do in order to deal with this problem is try to face it head on and say let's reduce the prevalence threshold for orphan drugs so what we're going to do is we're going to say instead of the level being 10 the level is only going to be five you're only you only have five patients instead of ten so that's gonna that's gonna take care of things and i and i kind of scratch my head a little bit and say well, I don't know. Is that gonna mean that people are no longer gonna develop products for diseases that have between five and ten? Is that gonna is that gonna actually change the pressure on the on the very small diseases that are below five and in, in my scale? Is that gonna is that gonna change the the pricing the pricing thoughts of the people who are at above five or not? Then they've also talked about, hey, maybe we should shorten the exclusivity period for these products. Maybe we should try and get generics on the market or biosimilars on the market earlier in order to, in order to deal with the fact that there's a, there's a high price at launch for a branded product. But again, that's that's kind of, okay, well, maybe, but maybe you've also now reduced the viability of somebody to do the development effort to bring that product to market, so maybe by reducing the exclusivity, you've brought things back to the point of, well, maybe I'm not willing to bring this, bring this forward. Maybe I'm only willing to bring this forward in certain ways. And you, you get into all kinds of intricacies, like the, the kind of evidence and the level of evidence that payers would like to see from a European perspective is quite different many of the times than what you, than what you want to see in the U.S., And there's all different flavors of that as you go along. So is somebody now gonna say, well, I'm gonna develop this product for a narrower portion of the markets that I'm going after. And those patients will have access to it and not other people. Understanding the impact of of different reforms on the the commercial opportunity is key. And at the same time, hey, people are talking about, hey, let's, let's review this from a European perspective. And the countries aren't waiting. The countries are saying, "Okay, we're going to we're going to we we see an issue. We're going to deal with it, whether or not there's overall regulation that's going to change. If that regulation changes at some point. Great. We'll deal with that when it changes. But in the meantime, we're not we're not going to wait.
0: Okay, Uh, some more stats from the aforementioned uh, JAMA study on drug pricing from 2020 to 2021, almost half. Of drugs uh, launched during that time were initially priced at over $150,000 a year. And from 2008 to 2021, launch prices for new drugs increased exponentially, according to the researchers, by 20% per year. And you kind of compare that to overall health costs, which usually increased by around 5% or so. And you can see why that's, you know, got, you know, raising a lot of eyebrows. And uh, I think the researchers uh, from Brigham and Women's Hospital argued for the kind of perspective Medicare drug price negotiations that are back in play as Democrats in Congress struggle to craft the slim down, build back better package. And, uh, you know, so the study arrives as Congress is kind of reviving this narrative around drug price controls. What do you think uh, the, the, the effect could be on these shores from what's going on in Europe? You know, could what's going on overseas have a corollary to not just the orphan drug landscape but the overall drug commercialization landscape over here.
1: I think it could. I mean, I think I think certainly there are folks in the US who look to who look at US to try to understand what mechanisms people are using and how effective they are and whether or not they're applicable. And some of them are applicable and some of them are are, are less so. My take on, I mean, like I said before, I've been doing this for thirty years now. I I I wish I had enough fingers to count the times that I've talked that that I've that I've had the discussion about the major reforms that are going to happen in the, in the next election cycle. There have been a lot of them, and there have been sometimes when some when things have actually happened, and sometimes where not much at all has happened. What 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 I think is it it's it's not a single issue. It's a many faceted issue that needs to be thought of in different ways. So when people think about, well, how am I going to deal with this with orphan drugs? That's closer to oncology than it is to diabetes, than it is to what we need to do in Alzheimer's in a different way. It's not as simple as, hey, here's the solution. Let's just go do it. But there are a lot of tools that the government already has from from how things have been put in place before that seem like if they could be put together in a different way would would allow you to address this on an incremental basis and deal with where you want to go. I mean, because to me, I'm certainly like I said before, I'm certainly all in favor of let's let's figure out how we can do this in a way that makes sense. Because you know, sometimes sometimes I have people from from industry talk to me about their responsibility to their shareholders, and I and I say all the time, hey you're in the healthcare business. And as a part of that, like it or not, if you're developing these drugs, you have social responsibility that comes with the development of them. And you have to find a balance between the responsibility you have to your shareholders and the responsibility that you have to the markets. Because if you don't gain market access, if you're not able to do what you need to, then you've wasted your shareholders' money. So you need to to be able to say, I'm bringing this product to market in order to address this population and be realistic about where you want to go. I mean, I, early in the pandemic, Mark, I had a, somebody who I've known for many years call me up and say, hey, I think I've got this therapeutic that, that's going to work for, for the pandemic. And I, and I think it's really going to be valuable to people. And I've had some people do some work for me to, to help forecast what the U.S. market could be for this product. And I said, okay, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'm in what, what kind of number are we talking about? $56 billion the first year. And I, and I laughed and I said, well, one thing I can tell you is that's not happening because there's no way that something that valuable is going to get is, is going to be paid $56 billion by the U S government in the first year. It, It can't happen. So understanding now, the value might the value be fifty six billion dollars? It might be, but the the actual affordability and the and the ability to gain market access are going to be limited in that way. And certainly, we've seen that with certain products over the last few years, where it seems like the mismatch between the way that they're priced and the and the way that they're positioned within the market, the markets have looked at them, even in the U S. and said, "I'm not buying that. This needs to be done differently."
0: Sure. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, the pandemic uh, was an exception to the rule because, you know, look how much Pfizer made off of uh, the, the BioNTech uh, co-developed sure. vaccine, Comirnaty, along with that they, they did make, uh, you know, tens of billions off of that. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot at stake, as you say. You know, uh, in 2021, the FDA approved 26 orphan drugs out of 50 total. That's 52 percent. 2020, it was 32 uh, had orphan drug designation 2019 21 uh of the 48 drug approvals uh, were orphan drugs and in 2018 34 uh, of the 58 uh were um uh, were, were orphan drugs which is more than half um so you and know could
1: go ahead i'm sorry
0: Mark. i'm just gonna say could, could this be the tip of the spear you know to to sort of curbing drug prices finally in this country and you know you 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 know Going forward, you, you say in the, in the paper that that pricing reimbursement and market access could be getting squeezed, you know, in the near future. Oh, sure. And, you know, we have, you know, no better example of that than, you know, in the next couple of days, we have Bluebird Bios uh, gene therapies going up before, uh, you know, an advisory committee. Um, and they got some major pushback, uh, as, as you know, in the EU for Zintelgo, uh, which is other one the product. beta cell. They yeah. had to withdraw the product because yeah. I think it was Germany, uh, as a matter of fact, did not want to pay the $1.8 million price tag for that uh, gene therapy uh, for, for TDT. Uh, So here we see some real, real world, you know, impacts of how this is already playing out.
1: Right. Right. And I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy, easy for me to get, to get buried in the weeds when, when we say, Oh, orphan drugs, because I think of orphan drugs as at least four different subsets, right? There's cancer orphan, there's, Rare disease orphan, ultra orphan, as some people call it. There's orphan that's neither cancer nor rare disease, and then there are gene therapies that can be for ultra orphan, can be for cancer, can, can might not be orphan at all. I've worked, I've done work on on with with companies that have products in development with gene therapies that aren't going to be orphan at all. So understanding how the how the 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 way you think that through and how that's going to work in different places at different times and applied in different ways ends up being an interesting thing. I mean, it's like, it's like years ago. I, I remember I, I had a, uh, I had a client at, at a, at a big uh, big pharma in the U S who was, who was trying to change the way they were going after oncology. And there was one person in particular there who said to me a number of times, why aren't there any oncology meds that cost more than a hundred thousand dollars per course of treatment? And my answer always was the same because nobody's charged more than $100,000 per treatment. It doesn't it's not like there's some, you know, the, you're going to touch the third rail of pricing if you price an oncology med more than $100,000 and then one day somebody crossed that crossed that line. And now, as you say, it's hard to find a new agent in, in oncology that's not priced above $100,000. Does that mean that they all have the same value that they all deserve that? No, it doesn't it means you need to think it through and you need to understand the circumstance that you're in and what you're trying to do. And that's where to me, if there's going to be meaningful reform, it needs to have a little bit of that subtlety built into it. Because if we say, Oh, let's take the solution to reduce patient out of pocket for insulin and apply it everywhere. The unintended consequence might be that some of these some of these rare diseases don't have those products developed anymore. And not because of the manufacturer, but because the insurance companies say, hmm, and maybe I can't fit that into my plan design.
0: What do you think is the new third rail of, of drug pricing? And is there one? And uh, and what do you think uh, realistically could happen to kind of
1: where, where is this all going? Do you, do
0: you think we will see some reforms in this country?
1: I don't think there's any single third rail. I think there's there are multiple places that can cause a lot of hurt, and there are multiple ways to try and weave your way through things. I think that understanding the difference between patient out-of-pocket, and we're talking U.S. here, the difference between patient out-of-pocket and, and drug prices and how those things are related to each other or not is one of the key issues that you need to think about. So, The impact, not just of what the patient pays and what the physician prescribes, but who manufactures that drug, how it moves through the system, and who benefits where as it moves along, allows you to start to see how things actually play out. That's not to say that that there's anybody in that chain who shouldn't be scrutinized. They should all be scrutinized in, in how this should work and where things should go, but the the solution is not going to be, I think, to pick one out and go after it. I mean, the same as to say, oh, orphan drugs, co- or, and there's a new orphan drug launching and it's launching it at more than one hundred thousand dollars a year. That's egregious. Well, what if that orphan drug? I'm just making it up. What if that orphan drug treats less than 10 patients a year, costs more costs, a lot more than one hundred thousand dollars. And takes children who otherwise would have died before they're age three and gives them a normal life. It's a different level of value. And you have to think about it differently than the next entrant into an existing large drug category or subcategory like diabetes. They're not the same. Although oftentimes they come from the same companies.
0: All right. Uh, I'm starting to get an appreciation for why you find your job. So fascinating. I still have a full (laughs) cup of coffee here, which shows that uh, how interesting I found the discussion. Didn't need to sip that once. Uh, Thank you, Jack. It has been fascinating. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. I, I, you know, I can always talk about this stuff and I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much, Mark.
0: I can tell you enjoy your job. Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMN Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Faylor. Our theme music is by M. Soan. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.